One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hello and welcome to the CapEx podcast. I'm John Ashmore, the editor of CapEx. Our guest this week is Helen Dale. Once described as Australian literature's lone classical liberal, Helen is an author, lawyer and a CapEx regular. For our podcast this week, I wanted to go back to the beginning of Helen's career and her debut novel, The Hand That Signed the Paper, which is a stirring account of one family dealing with its legacy of the Holocaust and the Holodomor in Ukraine, I began by asking Helen if she was surprised that a book that she wrote over 25 years ago has suddenly gained renewed relevance. In a way that I did not expect, yes. Uh, I, I, there was immense controversy over the book when it came out in Australia, but it was also immensely popular and won lots of prizes, so I can't complain at, uh, it, in terms of the amount of money that I made. I mean, the, the running joke is... Well, I, I wrote a novel when I was 20 and it sold lots of copies and won all these prizes and it meant that I could buy a house, uh, which is not something that many 22-year-olds, as I was at the time, c- can boast about. But I had, when I wrote it, I had, was at university, uh, I was reading classics and I had no um, qualifications in anything. I'd had nothing to do with sort of the literary community. It wasn't that I was badly educated or anything like that. I, I, I went to a posh school and had every advantage that someone of that sort of social class has, but certainly no connection with literature and the arts. I then later, after the book became an enormous bestseller and I made a lot of money out of it and that kind of thing, I then did not appreciate the sort of constant argumentation over my head in Australia. It was very annoying. And I left and travelled and worked. I worked here, I worked in Italy, I worked in Syria. Yeah, I, I, I really did go to some Got very... taste for war zones. Um, well, it was not a war zone then. This is no, the thing indeed. in the 90s. There was, and to be, while we're on the... People are on the subject of forecasting things. People have been praising me for saying, oh, gee, you got Ukraine right, didn't you? I absolutely did not get Syria right. You know, my experience there was an entirely positive one. And I found it a pleasant and welcoming place. I mean, obviously, you, you have to be a bit more careful if you are a woman alone in a Muslim country. You just have to. But I had relatively little of that because of my size. You know, I just towered over everybody. And so if they were going to harass a woman, they found one who was shorter than them, not one, that, one who was a head taller. So I had no sense of anything going wrong in Syria, whereas I long, from the beginning, I saw 
uh, with Ukraine, when I did all the research for the book, I thought, no, this is, this is bad. This is going to go very badly. As soon as Russia is powerful again, they will invade and try and conquer it because they have form and it's not just the Soviet Union. It goes back you know, to the 18th century and partitions of Poland and all of this, this, kind, this kind of thing. So I then left because I didn't have an idea for another novel. I'm not one of these people who can force myself to write something unless I have a good idea. I left the sort of literary crowd and completed the law degree that I had actually started, but I had only done one subject because there's this custom in Australia that you do a liberal arts qualification and a law degree at the same time. They're trying to get a compromise between the American system where you have to do them serially and the British system where people often do one degree in something else and then go and do like a finishing two years at City or that kind of thing. And it means your degree takes you five years or six years. But I'd already done the arts degree and just one law subject and I was still eligible to finish the law degree. So I went and, and did that and then just went into practice. But then I thought I, I was getting irritated again with Australia. It's just, it doesn't really suit my personality, basically. And I use the fact that I have these other citizenships to just come back over here. And just, so you have British citizenship through your parents? I have two of my two citizenships for, through my parents. I have UK through my dad and Irish through my mother. And so I just thought, OK, I'll come over here. And I did the law qualification that you need, the, the, B, the BCL at Oxford and just went into practice. Mm-hmm. So. so you're a, a literary lawyer and you kind of um, fuse those pursuits sometimes in pieces for Law and Liberty, for example. It's a big American website that does very um, high-minded people, even more high-minded than CapEx. Oh, yes, say. it's, it's less wonkish. It lets me just do this sort of very... Um, uh, uh, they call it to creative non-fiction in America, mm. the sort of New Yorker-style essays. Yeah. Uh, it, and it also, of course, being an American publisher, pays extremely well. I don't mind mm. it. People who see my stuff in Law and Liberty, that's one of the reasons why I do really pour my energy into those pieces. I'm a senior writer there, is because they do these American publications, they pay extremely well. Now, coming back to your book, The, the Hand that Signed the Paper, this is, uh, sorry, the first of your novels, you've written a couple of other novels that are very different to that. Yeah, I probably um, should say that. I, yeah. I mean, I left legal practice because I'd been a corporate lawyer and corporate lawyers make a good living, living in the middle of 2016. And in 2017, uh, Kingdom of the Wicked book one came out. Mm-hmm. And then in 2018, Kingdom of the Wicked book two came out and I was supposed to have another book come out in 2020 but there's a two things happen one COVID came along and two I haven't written it okay <laughs> convenient well we'll wait we'll wait for the uh, third installment the fourth no uh, it's not for not for Kingdom of the Wicked it's a fourth novel it's a ah, di- okay. totally different one okay so coming back to the hand that side the paper one thing that's striking reading it is how a lot some of the themes are repeating themselves now this idea that Ukraine is stacked with fascists for mm. example I think there's a scene in the book where a child is pretty horribly beaten and the teacher shouts at her for being a, a Ukrainian fascist. Mm. I mean, these, the things that Putin says now have been doing the round since for the best part of 100 years, mm. haven't they? And the history is complex in the sense that whilst the current accusations of fascism and Nazism directed at Ukrainians are largely nonsense, so much so that my Ukrainian friends have come up with an expression, and you're a Russian speaker, 
and this is one that works in both languages, although I think it's said a little differently in Ukrainian. So this is quite rude. This is like dropping the N-bomb in Russian. Ukrainians are starting to talk about Russians accusing them of being Zhidbanderovets. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, that is a way of saying the Russians think that we're run both by Jewish oligarchs yeah. and Bandera-aligned fascists. And for people who don't know any Ukrainian history, Stepan Bandera was both a leader of the Ukrainian independence movement and a collaborator with the Nazis. You cannot dress this up. Yeah. And he was also very anti-Semitic. He, he, like many Ukrainians, blamed the Jews for the Holodomor, for the mm-hmm. Ukrainian famine. And this is the kind of setting in which your book... Your book is kind of... It, it's between the modern era and, and back then, but most of it's set in sort of the 1930s around the yeah. Holodomor. Um, which we've uh, we have discussed on the podcast a bit before. Um, we had Anne Applebaum actually on, who's mm-hmm. written a book called Red Famine, which is all about that. Uh, which is similarly not the most cheerful read no, uh, in not. the world. But you said you thought, you know, you saw Russia invading Ukraine on your kind of bingo card, as you put it. Mm. To uh, what extent would you say that you agree with what's called the realist school of foreign policy, where? People say, you know, you shouldn't provoke this regime on the basis that it's dangerous. I mean, is that a sensible way to conduct kind of foreign policy on the basis that very, very bad people might conceivably do bad things? Well, when I wrote the various pieces that I did that some people have interpreted it as realist, I have to admit that I have never read a single thing written by any of the realist schools. So ever. John Mearsheimer, I think, is the... Yeah, I've, yeah. I, I've never read anything written by these people, and I tend to have a hostility to theory. So my approach when I wrote The Hand That Signed the Paper and my approach when I wrote my subsequent two novels is very much to learn the foreign language in, this, in question and to read all the history. Just read everything. And don't go to that reading and that linguistic acquisition with any theory go to it with an open mind so I've never read anything by the realist school and I don't think from my interpretation of of Ukrainian history which has turned out to be right um, I don't think that those realist arguments necessarily imply being some sort of pro-Putinist what they do imply and I said this to, to Neil Oliver on GB News when I, when I spoke about this, what they do imply is that you need to pick a policy and stick to it. So if you're not going to have Ukraine as a member of NATO, then Finlandization implies arming it to the teeth, like we did with Finland. If you're going to say uh, Ukraine is to be a member of NATO, then you have to understand, like Obama kept dropping these hints, you have to understand that that is not just Putin's red line. I mean, I wrote the hand that signed, signed the paper long before Putin became the Russian president. But it's Russia's red line. And there is this awful imperial history of Russia and Ukraine where Russians at once see Ukraine as the parent of their society. It's just that they became powerful in Moscow as a result of the Mongol invasion, whereas what is now West Ukraine was never taken by the Mongols, that kind of history. But they also really resent how different the Ukrainians became because the two civilizations diverged as a result of the Mongol conquest. And so you get this thing, I mean, you would know this, that uh, Ukrainians hate it, and I'm not going to say it in Russian. Um, they're, uh, they get referred to as little Russians, and Russians are called mm. great Russians. Ruthenians was another one you used was to see. Yeah. Or Halicians. And to be fair, one of the SS divisions that um, w- was raised in West Ukraine 
by the Nazis was called Halician, or if a Ukrainian was saying Galician, if a German was saying it. Um, and so you, they, they get all these sort of odd names and odd, this very odd relationship and one of the with Russia. And one of the pieces that I wrote for Law and Liberty about this, um, I described the Russian relationship to Ukraine as, I hate you, don't leave me. It's like an abusive relationship. And the thing is, this is ancient. It's hundreds of years old. It's not a new thing. But do you think this marks a kind of, to use a classical term, caesura in that relationship where actually now they just plain hate them? And it, it's, it's quite difficult from... I know mean, it's only been a month or so in, but it's mm. quite difficult to see how any Ukrainian, especially younger ones going up now, will have anything but a kind of burning hatred of Russia. Or the uh, Russian yes. state, Or the least. Russian state, at least. I mean, the thing that has really stunned me, I was unsurprised, I have to say, when the Russians beheaded the local government in Crimea and just took Sebastopol with it. I don't, I think it was hardly a shot fired. And I mean, in context, do remember that all the Ukrainians and Tatars who once lived there have been deported. It is entirely ethnically Russian now, as far as I'm, I'm aware. And most of those, and this gives you an idea of why it's fighting by the, for its very life, most of those Crimean Tatars and Ukrainians who were expelled, you know where they finished up? finished up in Mariupol, which is the city under siege now. And so I think now, it, I mean, Roger Morehouse has discussed this. He's a historian mainly of, of Poland, but he's also written some about Halicia, Ruthenia, that kind of thing. Um, he says, you've created this situation by invading Ukraine and also by this low, constant low-grade conflict, conflict in Luhansk and Donetsk. Uh, you've given them, there's nothing quite like warfare to defend your territory, to give you a sense of national identity, you know, in the classic 19th century self-determination sense. Yeah, it's, um, you said before you don't like kind of abstractions and theory when it comes to this thing, but um, do you think it's possible to take us a, a decent view on how this will end? We have these kind of slightly fake negotiations that are going on all the time. I, I, I wouldn't believe... I, I wouldn't believe yeah. anything coming out of those. I'm sh they are literally, I'm sure... Because the reason I don't believe anything coming out of them is not only because you've had people attempted poisonings and things like that on which Russia has formed for hundreds of years. I mean, Simon and one of the Ukrainian nationalist leaders, was killed that way. And this is just standard behaviour from this state. It does this. It tries to decapitate its opponents by taking out their leaders in one way or another. And poison is the favoured, one of the favoured ways. Um, or, you know, shooting them if they can, you know, try to behead, it, behead the leadership. Um, I just, my perception is that, that that part of the world doesn't have short wars. And I don't, quite know what Putin thought he was doing. He may have made the mistake of believing his, I mean, the, the, ex, the Aussie expression of believing his own bullshit, I hope you don't mind me swearing, where he really did have this idea in his head that in East Ukraine, especially where there are so many Russian speakers and ethnic Russians, that they would be welcomed with flowers. Mm. I mean, I struggle to see how you could con conduct a military campaign uh, with ex this expectation, to give you an idea, although before Operation Barbarossa started, the uh, Germans, the Nazis, had been cooperating with Stepan Bandera and had formed Ukrainian battalions and so on and so forth, uh, they did not expect 
to be welcomed with flowers, and yet they often were. So even Hitler didn't get into that sort of completely Barbie territory of thinking that people love you when they really don't. So I don't actually know what's going on there. It's, it's psychologically very strange. Do you think it strikes me that, and this is slightly speculative, but it, it's the product of being in a very closed circle where of appointees who are unlikely to tell him news he doesn't want to hear and that kind of thing. It's kind of the inherent weakness of, of the autocrat, perhaps. It depends on the autocrat. I mean, because there have been Russian autocrats in the past, like Peter the Great, who were perfectly capable of, be, of, of hearing things that they didn't want to hear. You know, you don't need to be a daft autocrat. Autocracy doesn't imply daftness. And I, I don't think Putin is daft. Um, there's a very good interview on um, trigonometry with a fellow who used to be, an uh, Ilyaranov, I think his name is. Um, yeah, I've watched who, that. Yeah. yeah, who used to yeah. be one of his advisors, and he makes it very clear that, yes, Putin is isolated, but he's not a fool. He says he's the most rational person he's ever met, met. I think yeah. it was. Yeah, it's and, a good interview. So. And so I'm not quite sure how this has emerged, but it may emerge out of this. I read that entire speech on the Kremlin website, and I actually linked to it in my law and liberty piece, uh, where he does engages in this I hate you, don't leave me thing, where... He says that we're brothers, that he sort of expresses... So this, this is on sort of the 21st of February or something like that, no, just before no, the invasion? No, it just before. It was the one in July last year, which ah. is longer. It's 5,000 okay. words long. So I've linked to it in my Law and Liberty piece to the English language translation. And I got a friend who's a native Russian speaker to check it because my Russian's lousy and just said, Can you, is, how good is this translation? And she said, it's not only a good translation, it's very nicely mm. translated as well. Um, and... That where he engages in that, so you've got this weird thing of Ukraine is part of Russia and we are brothers, and it's expressed using the language of Panslavism. Yeah. And then you've got the um, this irritation with Ukrainians collaborating with Hitler, with Ukrainians wanting you know their own style of government and really disliking what happened in Maidan and the revolution of dignity and that kind of thing. So it starts getting very sphere of influency. So it's kind of like we're brothers, but look at here is this very specific list of grievances I have with you lot, you rotten stinkers. And it's very, very psychologically divided. Mm. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. 
So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So it does feel like it's uh, whatever the kind of immediate pretext for the war, denazification and all, all that stuff, that this is something that he has been meditating on for a very long time. I think I indeed. do need to just point out here, because I've, I've said it elsewhere and I'll just say it as briefly as possible. These Nazi allegations now being directed at Ukraine. That's why they're coming up with things like Jid Banderovets and stuff like making jokes about it now. Mm-hmm. Um, is They are ridiculous. You just cannot have a country that's elected a Jewish president by an overwhelming majority like that and at one point in 2019 had not only a Jewish president but a Jewish prime minister and being a bunch of Nazis. There may be very, very conservative nationalist elements in Ukraine. All the comments about this Azov battalion are... And I, and I have to say, to the extent that any of them consider themselves to be Nazis, they're completely bonkers. And the same way that any Russians who consider themselves to be Nazis are completely bonkers. The Nazis were willing to give a pass to West Ukrainians who have tend to have that Norse ancestry, so they're tall and they're fair and sort of fit in with the Nazi ideal of beauty, but not people from southeast Ukraine, and certainly, because Azov is based on the Sea of Azov, it's defending at Mariupol at the moment, and certainly not any Russians. All Russians were considered untermenschen by the Nazis. There may have been periodic moments of collaboration at various points amongst anti-communists or Cossacks or that kind of thing, but the overwhelming view of of Hitler and the high command was that Russians were untermenschen and could not be Nazis. And I have now seen multiple pictures of people who are actually Russian covered in swastika tattoos. And my response to them is very much, so you identify as a member of the master race because you're trying to join a club that won't have you as a member. Right. Yeah, I always find it strange. I lived in in St. Petersburg for about a year on and off. and, And even there, of all the cities in the world... There was a fairly lively, they just called them skinheads, even in mm. Russian, skinheady mm. um, movement. Yeah, it's almost they're, gl- they're gluttons for punishment, and, I think. And there's that whole sense of, have you not read a book? Even a completely communist textbook would tell you, that give you this information accurately, what the, the Nazis thought of the Russian population. And mm. it's the principal reason why so many Russian prisoners of war died in captivity. I mean, because of this... The Nazis didn't think they had to abide by the Geneva Conventions on the Eastern Front, whereas on the Western Front they by and large did. Mm. Yeah, it's very, very basic World War Two history. Yeah, I want to I want to get on to the most recent piece you wrote for Capex, which was about the kind of fog of media. We talk about the fog of war, but we also have this kind of very high velocity, constant uh, you know flurry of hot takes mm. we like to call them. And um, one thing I'm interested in is, uh, I think. You talk about the, the way that social media has ruined, it's kind of ruined the informational landscape. But some of the things, I do you think it's fair to say that it, it exacerbates sort of cognitive biases we already have? And one I noticed a lot during the Ukraine war, and I've probably done it myself, 
is the power of wishful thinking. Mm. So we see Ukrainians blowing up tanks and we think, they're winning, they're winning the war. And I would love it if they were, but I, I think that's a dangerous well, place to go. The, the one that really stood out to me at the beginning and which I knew had to be false even without knowing the footage was false, was uh, you know, praising the Ukrainian Air Force to the skies with that ghost of Kiev. Yes. And it turned out to be footage from a video. Uh, so this was the idea there was some like ace pilot flying pilot. around who had notched up 10 kills or mm. or something like that um and it and turned I out to that. just be a fake and but. it turned out to be a fake and i just thought i mean yes the russians have done very badly they've ground to a standstill um they are clearly they've got enormous logistics problems i mean i, I just had this thing in my head those of you who know russian history the way Field Marshal Zhukov, who was a truly great World War II general, so much so that the Russians used to say the expression in Russian translates into English, where there is Zhukov, there is victory. And he had to personally take hold of Soviet logistics during World War II because it was just a mess. And I just saw that. I thought, oh, well, you know, some, some things don't change and Russian logistics is one of them. And But by the same token, they've just got so much more firepower the issue, of course, for them is they've got all this firepower and they can just sit there in a tret, which is what they did in Grozny. But then by the same token, you've got the Afghan problem of the West, NATO, funneling all these arms to the Ukrainians, constantly resupplying them. And I noticed that Putin was saying, oh, those, all those NATO's, NATO arms supplies into Ukraine, you know, they're legitimate targets. And a few people got cold feet and it was basically Britain going, you know, oh, no, we, want, we don't want to get bombed. And, and it was Britain going, give. And just taking them in and nothing's happened. So I think that's quite interesting as well. I do wonder how much of Putin's game, whether it's threatening to bomb the arms convoys going into Ukraine or whether it's threatening to use tactical nukes, is, is sabre-rattling. It's very hard to tell. Yeah, the other thing you talk about in the piece is about how... I think the media is quite quick, and, and politicians as well, and, and Facebook and things like this. We're always very quick to talk about misinformation or disinformation, especially from Russia. But it strikes me it's a, it can be a bit of a, a crutch for things that we otherwise don't like. And Brexit is a very obvious example of this, where it's much easier to blame the Russians mm. than to uh, deal with the fact that people think things that you don't like. Yeah. I actually was one of the people who um, was very alarmed by the media's behaviour starting in 2016. I mean, there are people who've alleged that it was going on beforehand, but I didn't notice it and I was working in the press. I didn't notice this in the media ecosystem. And, but from sort of 2016 on, just the quality of reporting just fell off a cliff. And it was exacerbated by social media because there was this initially, this desperate attempt to maintain advertising revenues. Then the cultural composition of journalism as a profession changed because it was, became something that you couldn't start in from nothing. You needed to be upper middle class mm. because the pay was so poor. So it, it weirdly became much posher. And you got all these really quite posh people, especially in America, with very, very old views from their universities that are really very strange. And they just completely distorted journalism because it then became a story about what they wanted the world to be rather than the world as it is. And you saw that with Trump. You saw that with Brexit. Uh, you saw it very badly. And this is where that managed to contaminate the British press as well with COVID. I mean, I, my candid advice to every media organisation everywhere is to get rid of fact checkers. 
because they don't check any facts. They're completely partisan. And in the fog of war, they're not going to get things right. It's just not worth it. You're just best off trying to do the traditional old style journalism and get accurate information. And then if you're wrong, because it's the fog of war, don't make it the fog of news. Say, this was wrong. Put the original version and put the updated version side by side and huge amounts of this nonsense will just ebb away. And who do you think... Um, do you think the Putinist version of uh, whatever you want to call it, the kind of alternative reality, is um, it, it going to have much effect now that he is such a kind of persona non grata in the West? Are we even effective targets for him? I mean, we saw the thing with J.K. Rowling and it seems like he kind of got what deserved. He got people in the West at his throat. So even now he seems to be able to sort of set... Set the hairs running. Well, that's what, that J.K. Rowling intervention was probably the best bit of Russian propaganda I've seen since the war started. A lot of their other stuff just wasn't landing, or it was only landing with those national conservatives in America who've kind of taken on yeah. Putinist values. You know, they, they've developed a, what Ed West calls an oikophobia of the right to go with the oikophobia of the left and weirdly finish up saying the same sorts of things where no Western country can do the right thing or is doing the right thing. And so he was getting cut through there. And I noticed that there is, was some very strange stuff coming out of the mouths of sundry Americans. And I have encountered it a little bit here, but nowhere near to the same extent. And I've said to American friends, I've got Polish and Ukrainian American friends who are really alarmed because they're quite conservative. They tend to be quite conservative people. If you finish up with Ukrainians staying in Britain, they'll reliably vote Tory. Uh, but they're not um, nutty Putinists or that kind of thing. They're sort of conservative liberals, kind of 19th century liberals. And they were, they've been really horrified. And I've been able to assure them, well, don't worry, Britain isn't like that. The, the, the Tories are reliable on sovereignty. We just had a big Brexit argument about precisely this issue. So the Tories will be very reliable on sovereignty. But then with the JK Rowling thing, uh, Putin really didn't, managed to get cut through and do the classic set people against each other. And I was just sitting there going, well, divide and rule, it still works. And that's mm. why I put it in the piece, because it really does still work. And what's your view about, we talked a bit about how the war might go on and on a bit. But for him personally, do you, do you think he's looking at this kind of North Korea style isolation from the rest of the world? Or, I mean, can, can he go on like that? Adrift from... A globalised economy? Because Russia has been pretty globalised in yeah. a lot of respect. I must admit, back in 1995, when I was winning all these awards for the hand that signed the paper, when people asked me what I thought might happen to Ukraine in the future, the thing that always struck me, and I, that I always said, was I think it will eventually finish up being partitioned. Because the eastern part is just so much more Russian. And, and I mean, this is very crude, but look at a picture of the country. It's kind of like a rectangle with, with Crimea hanging off the bottom and draw a line through the middle of it that goes through the middle of Kiev. But the thing is, you really should follow the rivers so pr that produces that sort of serpentine effect. But that gives you a rough idea. I always thought yeah, it was that the eastern half of Ukraine was the, the, the Ukrainians who fought for the Soviets. I, I mean, I... I'm sure there might have been the odd collaborator, but their numbers were very low. They were overwhelmingly fighting for the Soviet Union. It was the Western, the collaborators were in West Ukraine. And so I thought this could head towards partition. And I get the impression, it's very difficult to tell, fog of war, fog of news, that that's what Putin wants as well. Now he's not been able to take any major city. Uh, is OK, I'll just try to... Uh, 
claim the eastern half and bearing in mind of course there he may want to try to get as many of the because a lot of the ukrainian army is currently in the eastern half of the country because of luhansk and donetsk um, and, and try to collar them and destroy the ukrainian troop army there in detail in that sort of classic military sense but i don't know because he just hasn't been able to get into the interior properly so they've still got a very easy path of retreat I don't know about the North Korea thing, South Korea thing. Uh, when I was talking about the, the idea that Ukraine could be partitioned in the 90s, I wasn't conceiving of that. Oh, I mean of, just it, um, yeah. Russia being cut off from the world. So North Korea in that sense, as in Russia is like a giant North Korea. But I don't really think the analogy holds because it's just, just got so think, much more power. I just know. I don't think that will hold. And the thing is... I think it is fair to say, and I've been very critical of the environment movement, I think they really are, are a nonsense factory, so much so that a lot of the other claims that they've made about various things over the years I suspect may not be true either. Um, the, the regime of sanctions is so such intensity that the only thing that's keeping Russia on its feet at the moment is all those purchases of oil and gas, which are vast. People need to understand this. So Germany particularly is replenishing Russia's coffers every day. And there's a website done by two Ukrainian engineers and very affectionately, fetchingly done in the colours of the Ukrainian flag that does a real-time count of how much the European Union as a totality has paid for Russian oil and gas. And it then very help, helpfully splits it into oil, gas and some other product. I'm not, I'm not byproduct of gas might be, even be fertiliser materials. I'm not qu quite sure. And you're just sitting there just watching the numbers tick over and you just go, that's so much money. You can buy an awful lot for that much money. Mm. You can. Although I think one thing I've been interested in looking at is that they're struggling to make a lot of the, the machinery they need for their war machine relies on, on Western tech. So it might not but just just be a money thing. But You uh, do. Well, this is the thing. Where do a lot of the world's chips come from? Taiwan. Yeah. Taiwan, yeah. yes. I mean, at the moment, Taiwan is likely to be not very friendly to, to Russia. Interesting case study in a way of the kind of... Um, what happens if you upset one bit of the kind of globalised economy model? How mm. difficult it is for a country to survive in that. Speaking of globalisation, I mean, we, we've done half an hour and we have barely mentioned the last two years of the pandemic. I mean, what, what's your view now, looking back on it, in terms of the changes it has wrought? And I'm thinking of, I read lots of pieces during the pandemic saying everything's changed now. Again, it's a lot of it was wishful thinking. It was the cause I've always supported, you know, means we must have a bigger state because of the pandemic. We must have a smaller state because of the pandemic. Um, or just the kind of John Gray miserablest take that he wrote a piece saying, um, this is the apocalypse. Mm. Uh, sitting here now with you, unmasked, in a normal setting, it doesn't feel like it was the apocalypse. It was pretty unpleasant for people to go through. And I think certain cities globally, and the one that I know best about is Melbourne in Australia, which had the longest lockdown of any city in, in the developed world. But you've got to remember in context that lots of the rest of Australia had almost no lockdowns at all, three days or that kind of thing. It's a, it's a federal system. It was pretty unpleasant while it was happening. I think a lot of the policies were implemented with, with inadequate understanding of what was going on, especially lockdowns. My argument against them was always you don't casually go and copy a policy from a totalitarian state. So I wasn't coming from the perspective of the scientists. I'm an ethical pluralist, not an ethical monist. So therefore, I rank civil liberties as highly as I rank public health. 
Whereas the, both the lockdown sceptics and the pro-lockdown people were all putting them on a single value axis, a single value column saying, well, OK, let's rank cost civil liberties and let's cost to life and let's cost the cost of lockdowns. And I was just sort of thinking, no, you actually need to argue. You need to try. You need to prove that your scientific claims are more important, not more valuable, more important, which is a different thing than the civil liberties claims. But the lawyers who wanted to make civil liberties arguments, I mean, Lord Sumption was the most prominent one, mm-hmm. but many others, I mean, Francis Harbour Barrister, and I did at various times as well, Adam Wagner, another barrister, human rights barrister, were all making civil liberties arguments. But the, the fight just turned into a fight over science and we were all sidelined, no matter how many intemperate uh, op-eds that Lord Sumption or Adam Wagner wrote for their various outlets, it just became a science fight. And... So I don't think, I think the airline industry has probably been really quite adversely impacted because there was the quite long period before the pandemic where I think um, global air travel was probably underpriced. Then I do think working from home is now definitely a thing. Getting, dragging people into the office five days a week is going to be very, very hard from now on. But in other respects, no, things haven't changed that much, have they? Yeah, I was struck by this. We published a Apart piece. Apart from just... crap media, that right. media has got way yeah. more crap, but that process had already started. Yeah, I think, again, like, like I was saying in general about social media, it, the pandemic exacerbated the faults of things that already existed it, rather than, than kind of creating them. But like you said, I mean, home, work from home is definitely a thing, but this, there was this idea of the great resignation and some academics, we published a piece earlier this week um, from a site called The Conversation, which does sort of academics write pieces, and they kind of crunched the numbers and they were like, well, actually, this just hasn't really happened. Or if In the ha- UK, at least, ha- it hasn't. No, it hasn't. Yeah. Uh, well, this is another example of, of what uh, my partner calls America brain. There does appear to be some evidence for this in the United States. They're really, I mean, there's very robust data about workforce participation. Right. But the thing is, that's America, which is a very different system of social organisation from the United Kingdom or anywhere in Europe or Australia or New Zealand or Japan or France. And so don't engage in America brain. And it's not just with things like that. It's the pro-Putinists. Yeah, that's America brain as well. All the, the Black Lives Matter thing, that's, that's all America brain. It's just irrelevant to Britain. You should not pay attention to it. It doesn't matter. Yeah, it's always interesting seeing protesters saying, stop, don't shoot. Hands up, at, don't at, shoot. At to, police officers who don't have guns. Yeah, it's so. the, some, some of the funniest things I've ever seen. I, th- I always think that like we pay far too much attention to America and know almost nothing about, say, Ireland, Irish politics, even Northern Ireland, which is part of the UK. People yeah. are remarkably ignorant about that. Well, they don't re- even realise, I've got into conversations with people, they don't even realise that Northern Ireland has different political parties and that Labour deliberately doesn't run. You know, people don't know very basic things like that. Yeah, I think so. But if if nothing else, the war in Ukraine has uh, got us to concentrate on our our oh. own continent in a yeah, in a serious to, way. Pay attention to Europe, please. <laughs> well, I think that's uh, an excellent note on which to to end our podcast. Helen, thank you so much uh, for joining us. Helen's books, uh, the hand that signed the paper, Kingdom of the Wicked one and two, are all available in whatever good bookshop or online outlet you choose. And she will continue to write for CapEx. So please do keep your eye out for that. Thanks very much, Helen.